Welcome to the latest episode of High Stakes. I'm Paige Soya, the Managing Director of K Street Capital. And today's episode is going to be about consumer products and consumer marketing and go-to-market strategies uh, for venture-backed companies. Um, but before we get started and do some intros here, I just want to share with our audience that this is our last episode of this season. Um, so we'll be coming out with a new season in 2024, and we're not sure exactly what the topic's going to be yet. So if you have ideas and you want to share that with us, feel free to do so. You can share it with Lexi at lexi at kstreet.bc. And we're sort of going to be getting our creative juices flowing over the holidays, putting that new season together. But thank you guys all for listening. It's been pretty incredible. We started this podcast six months ago, and we have 20,000 listeners, all organic traffic, all thanks to the really awesome founders and investors that are part of the K Street community. So with that, um, Shizu, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Hi, guys. Uh, my name is Shizu. I am the founder and CEO of a company called Apothecary. I'm also born and bred in D.C. area, D.C., Maryland, Virginia. Our facility is based in Lorton in Virginia. We're about 47 people today, and we call ourselves Mother Nature's Pharmacy, meaning that we provide natural remedies and plant medicines as alternatives to over-the-counter supplements like melatonin, laxatives, energy drinks, wine, really kind of everything that you walk through to the drugstore with. And we bridge Eastern medicine with Western day healthcare. Formerly was at Wall Street. I worked at Goldman Sachs for a few years and then started my first company after Wall Street called Drink, also based in D.C. Um, ran that for about eight and a half years, got acquired. And now here I am in the herb nerd world. Uh, Paige, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. Um, and Sahil. Yeah, absolutely. So my name's Sahil, and I'm one of the co-founders of an Indian fast casual brand called Rasa. So we have five locations in the D.C. area. And our quick story is that um, I sort of grew up in the restaurant industry. My dad and his business partner, they started Indian restaurants back in the early 90s. And my dad's business partner, the chef, his son and I have known each other since we were born. And so growing up, we started to realize that a lot of people had misperceptions around Indian cuisine or weren't necessarily comfortable trying different foods or different flavors. And so as we got older, after a brief stint in the corporate world, similar to Shizu, we decided uh, we wanted to kind of come back home to our roots, join the family business and, and build upon what our fathers have started. Super cool. I, I will just also say we had another investor who was going to join us who's not here today. So I'm going to play the investor role, which is fine because I'm, I am an investor in both of your companies more than once in some cases. So I'll do that. And, um, and then I was also going to say we usually don't invest in, this is a really interesting episode because we usually don't invest in consumer. Both of you know that that's actually like not our main focus. It's usually much more heavily regulatory focused companies in the tech world. But sometimes if we have a really good deal with a really strong founder and a and really strong product to market fit, we will make exceptions to that. So I think at the end, I'll talk a little bit about kind of exits in this space and why they're so different and so interesting for people to think about outside of the tech world. But before we do that, let's talk about go to market and the changing landscape digitally. Either of you feel free to jump in. But when you think about putting your strategy together as I mean, both of you are, I wouldn't say early stage companies anymore, but I don't know what you would want to call yourself growth stage, early growth stage. And you've had a lot of traction, and a lot of success at this point. But maybe talk a little bit about how you started at that strategy standpoint and how that's evolved to today. Yeah, I mean, I guess I could start. Uh, we were just chatting a little bit with um, Sahil about like Union Market when we first had our pop up. 
And so I think one of our go-to-markets was like both go-to-market, but also content creation, building legitimacy, learning the user experience that would mirror on digital, and then also creating some PR buzz, and then an MVP essentially for like what we wanted to create for the digital company. And so for us, at least go-to-market was opening a pop-up. We paid $1,000 a month of rent in the union market, and then it was really just an inventory investment. That way, the downside was very limited, but we could learn so much about what products and customers and the questions that they were asking. And it was really clear to us that education was still so, so missing from the space of herbal medicine. And we were very focused on Ayurvedic medicine at the time. So we were doing things like pitta, dosha types, and, and everyone was like, what are you talking about? But it was like a really interesting learning that like we shouldn't put ourselves just into Ayurvedic medicine only. So we took a step back that we were able to reverse engineer the digital website, the D2C side, to be much more about plant remedies as a whole and not box ourselves into one modality of herbalism or the other. And I see that because it's really important that like a lot of brands, I think, just go right off the gate with like 150K investment into a site without any testing and any kind of learning in the very beginning. And so for us, like it took at least a year to really actually get up and running. But at least when we went to fundraise our first round in October 2019, before we launched the site, we had points of data that would make it very clear about like, here's what we're going to invest. And here's the expected return on investment based on what we've done already. And so that was our initial go to market and then content for social and then starting to 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 use that across um, paid, earned and owned. So, okay, so I do want to talk about that also, because I and I think our audience is particularly interested in that aspect yeah. of it, digital marketing. But first, how did how did Rasa get started from a marketing perspective? I actually don't remember now thinking back. Yeah, it was it was really different in some some senses because we're a physical business in a restaurant. So for us, we wanted to get our food into as many people's mouths as possible. So initially, we actually started just trying to understand the problem of we saw that there were like the the perception of Indian food had changed so much when we were growing up people's relationship to Indian cuisine and culture was like the Simpsons and Indiana Jones with monkey brains on the plate right it was a lot of I don't like curry it burns twice all this kind of stuff and so we started we started recognizing okay that's not the case today people are actually really enjoying Indian food especially in urban and high earning, well-educated parts of the country, but they're not eating it that frequently. So what is the disconnect? And what we realized was there were a lot of barriers to trying Indian food. So a lot of times they were in random locations. When you go to, to the restaurant itself, it would feel very intimidating in that you'd walk in and there's sitar music playing and Taj Mahal painting on the wall, kind of like white tablecloth. And then this this like man with a giant mustache and like my dad's have giant mustaches too. So no, no judgment. <laughs> they'll come and they'll give you this menu with 500 items you can't pronounce. And so what we've realized is that people are loving Indian food today, but it's kind of been an intimidating experience. And so we started thinking about how do we flip those on its head? And that's kind of how we got started. Awesome. I feel like there's some similarities with the pot they carry also with people not knowing, like, your branding around each of your products, Shizu, has been very like what the product will 
do to you or how it will make you feel versus yeah. actually talking about the, all the ingredients that are inside because nobody knows what those are and yeah. they're scary to think about and you don't understand how they all come together to have that experience kind of. I love how you say do to you, like stop your whining. That's what it's going to do to you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's good for it. Yeah. Just have to be intentional about the product names because that's that's an area, I think, at least in our category that has been more dark or woo-woo. We wanted to make it more modern and fun and approachable and content worthy. Yeah. 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 And maybe now if you could talk a little bit about your digital strategy, I'll, I have some specific questions that I think people would be interested in, but would just love to hear generally how that's evolved for both of you, because I mean, you're very much in the physical world, like you're very much in the physical space, but I think a lot of your brand awareness and everything has come from online. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think every year, at least for us, has been quite different. Like in our very, very first year, we, we just didn't have a ton of money. So when you have like one person focusing on all marketing, growth, brand, PR, literally everything, there's only so much you can do. So we focused on like what would have what would be the most lowest hanging fruit at that time. And for us, it was like um, obviously some paid, but focusing on email and focusing on these automated nurture series and abandoned cart series and post-purchase series and really honing on the full sales funnel um, and marketing mix. And so that was like probably year one. Year two, we started to do a lot more PR and earned media um, and then layering that in with affiliate and affiliate then leaning into then email acquisition. And so we now have in our four, three and a half years in, you know, we finally have like a brand team, a paid media team in-house. Um, we have a creative team now in-house as well. And so we're able to move a lot faster on the digital side. And I, I would think of ourselves as primarily a digital marketing and education company more than we are, I think, a D2C company in many ways. We're here to serve our customers and educate them on plant medicine and plant remedies. And that's primarily what we do with our digital marketing, honestly. And then people subscribe. And then they get emails from us about new product launches, and that's when they ultimately convert into revenue. So about, I would say about 40% of our revenue today is owned between email and SMS. And then about 25% of new new customers coming in every week through paid, and then other new customers coming in through referral, organic, affiliate, PR, everything. I was going to say, when you think about the 25% of new customers that come in through paid, what's the paid channel that's been the most successful? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, top of funnel ever since the iOS change has been the struggle. Top of funnel is where because we're starting from like we're going to everybody and then you want to narrow it into like your actual demographic. And so we've been using and digital marketing geeks will probably understand this, but we have things like Black Crow, which is basically an AI technology that we layered on to our meta. Um, so basically that prospects and creates lookalike audiences that uses AI to basically use that data versus relying on the algorithms of uh, Meta. And it is an additional fee, but it allows us, we're saving, you know, in thousands of dollars just by not targeting the wrong folks either. And so we've used that. And I, I also think Meta, ever since iOS has improved in that they've launched these new Shopify campaigns. So it creates lookalike space just on your Shopify customers. They also have these new campaigns called Advantage Campaign which are basically like Black Crow. It's a, they've gotten a lot more sophisticated, I would say, ever since the rules changed on them too. Um, but generally speaking, yeah, paid is mostly on top of funnel with Meta. 
Um, Google and cost per clicks as the brand gets a lot more recognition is a lot more effective as well. And then we find Amazon advertising actually to work in favor for D2C too. It's just cheaper from a top of funnel side. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one more question and then, and then Sahil, I'd love to hear, hear more from you guys and how that's worked for you. But when you say affiliates, you're talking about like TikTok influencers and things like that. No, affiliates more like um, like we use Rakuten, we use okay. um, like Wall Street Journal, Forbes. They basically have an article on us and then they get a kickback or 10% sales based on share or sale, which is like an affiliate management platform. But it's, it's essentially like influencer, but using businesses. It's more of a yep. B2B influencer strategy. Yeah. Interesting. So are you not using a sort of uh, uh, B2C influencer strategy at all? We are, but it's all seeded. It's not paid. We don't really believe in like the paid influencer world as much as we used to. We just want to build more authentic relationships with UGC creators, micro content creators. And then we use the UGC into our paid strategy in whether it's whitelisting and doing ads through their vis-a-vis their accounts or just getting content that we would host on our accounts ourselves. But video obviously performs really good. Um, and I always think with social, it's either entertainment or education. And with social, we tend to prioritize entertainment and email, we tend to prioritize education. And so they're just different channels for how we communicate. Yeah. So you'll see me like dancing on, on, on meta. <laughs> I will say your, your marketing is, is super engaging and interesting and I love getting it. And, and same with Rasa's. Like when I see that stuff in my inbox, I always read it. Whereas other, other things you delete, you know, it's like junk that you just don't care about. But if it's engaging enough, and you have the right audience that you're sending it to, I think it can be extremely effective. So maybe share a little bit about Rasa. I know a different space in the in the F&B space, but how have your go-to-market strategies changed from a digital perspective? Yeah, absolutely. Months? So I would say that today we're just getting started on some of the D2C stuff that Shizu is talking about. Obviously, we're more of a brick-and-mortar physical business. And so for us in the early days with running the physical restaurants, we we decided to really focus heavily on PR to get the word out. So there was there was definitely a lot of organic kind of inbound stuff where what we were doing attracted a lot of interest, both locally, regionally, and nationally. And then we also worked with a PR firm in the early days to help tell our story and get people aware of what it is that we're doing. Very similarly, we're kind of, we're not selling pizza or hot chicken or burgers. And so as a result, there's an element not only informing and educating people about what we're doing, but just getting the word out that this category even exists. This is an option for you. And so in the early days for us, there's a big focus on PR and then social media as well. And in, in transparency, and I'm sure there's, there's other kind of early stage entrepreneurs that might be listening, we were just sort of doing it in our spare time. <laughs> you know, it's kind of, yeah, there, there was not a very cohesive strategy. It was like, one day I would post, but actually my business partners, <laughs> you know, it, it's um, I'm grateful to look back at that with sort of like a smile tear emoji a little bit. And today it um, it feels like the company's marketing stack is really growing up. So we just brought on a director of brand and marketing. And so all of those, those email strategies, the card abandonment and all of that kind of thing. That's all coming into place. We've launched an app for the first time. So it feels like there's been so many facets of digital marketing that we've known we've wanted to do, but haven't necessarily had the resources for. And following our Series A, we've been able to 
actually start layering those in. And it's been really neat to see how that's, um, that's been attracting new guests or how that's impacting frequency and, and things of that nature. Is, is your business, and correct me if I'm wrong, I just remember you had this um, brilliant strategy during COVID. We had, we had just invested right before COVID. It was like your first seed round and it was like, oh, oh crap. Like we basically invested in a food and beverage company and now everything is shut down and we're just going to lose that entire investment overnight like all the other um, I would say like competitors of yours sort of like fell apart during that time. And thanks for the you faith can... page. Thanks for the faith. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah. I mean, it's just like in general, the space, it was a terrifying time. I'm sure for you as well. Like I can't even imagine, totally. but, but, um, I mean, we, you know, we, we continue to support and reinvest, but what you guys did was you had this really cool strategy of sort of pivoting to almost like, what was it like catering or B2B sales? And that seemed like it worked really well and actually got you guys more profitable during that time. Are you still focused on that or is it more the consumer like walk-in visitors that are your primary target audience at this point? Yeah. So I'd say two of the words that we really think about from a value standpoint are community and connection. And so when the pandemic hit, we started thinking a lot about what does it mean to actually show up for our community right now? What does it mean to be a part of the fabric of this? And, uh, you know, I never thought I'd say our restaurant was like inspired by Ford. And I'm not talking about in like the, the like production line factory sense, but I, I'll never forget reading an article where it said Ford was making ventilators and they'd kind of pivoted their production lines to figure out how they could support right as things started hitting the fan. And so my partner and I looked at each other and we said, well, we can't make ventilators, but we can make really high quality food at an affordable price point that's good for you. And so we right off the bat started providing free meals to medical workers and school children. And about two weeks in, we were like, holy crap, there's a lot of demand here. We're really grateful to be able to support people. And we also need to figure out, one, how we cover our costs, but two, there's clearly more people that need food. We don't know who they are, and we don't know how to get the food to them once we figure out who those folks are. So we reached out to World Central Kitchen, who had actually been thinking the exact same thing from the other lens. Uh, they knew who needed food, they had money, and they knew how to get it to them but they didn't necessarily have the internal production capability. So overnight, we and another restaurant called Maidan, which is based here in DC, became the first two restaurants in the country that started working with World Central Kitchen, piloting their, their kind of Chef's Feeding America program for the pandemic. And so that ended up not only being something that felt really good and was making a big impact in our local communities, but it also served as a great vehicle for getting the name out and building brand awareness around who we are, what we do, and what we stand for. Yeah. And and um, and did that change your, I mean, I guess that must have, that time for you must have really completely changed your go-to-market strategy, you know, on a dime from what you were doing previously. Totally. I mean, <laughs> 2020 was very much a year of, you know, of asking, how can we help and who needs help? And so... Uh, it started with World Central Kitchen, and then that actually expanded to working with, um, there was this amazing group called Off Their Plate that was focused on medical workers that showed up. And then, um, yeah, that expanded to a group called Real Food for Kids, which is providing meals to lower-income school children in the DMV, and then a partnership with Feed the Fridge, and even, uh, you know, all the way to feeding refugees from Afghanistan last year, who were sort of landing at Dulles. And so for us, it was... Yeah, it was very much like, okay, we can't have people inside of our physical restaurants. The whole model has flipped upside down. 
all of the office workers we banked our business on have disappeared. So what do we need to do to survive and how might we support our community in doing so? And so the last couple of years have certainly been a rocky time in the restaurant industry, but we found that going, diving deeper into, you know, the people that have been there to support us has allowed uh, a lot of support to come back our way. Absolutely. So Shizu, one more question for you. I know we're running out of time here, but you sort of touched on this earlier, but when you're thinking about the mix between retail and D and D to C, yeah. how has that evolved over time? Like how are you, how do you imagine it evolving for your product? Yeah. I mean, so we're actually probably going to expand with Target um, by the end of Q4 of next year. This is the new news. Wow. Right? Yeah. But, you know, in it, it is a really exciting time. I think we've been very cautious about, you know, retail only from a the inventory levels that inventory, you know, that, that retailers are carrying. So being cautious of that, being cautious of high cost of capital and the cost of working capital while being paid like net 90 days. And so we're just being pretty thoughtful from like, capital perspective and then mostly about consumer adoption curves because generally speaking we think herbal medicine is like in its hype mode now but i do think we're probably a year out before more mass market is like interested in this because preventative health has been more of the rage and of since covid frankly has happened and mental health and then sober curiosity and people not wanting to drink anymore and those are all strong strong tailwinds behind apothecary uh, but, you know, we, we still think it's about a year out for like mass market, you know, thousands of stores and having our products in those stores. And so Amazon has been first. We expect Amazon to be close to 20 percent of revenue by the end of next year. Um, and then obviously retail expansion in Q4 of next year through 2025. Um, so we do expect retail to significantly expand the business, whether from a projection standpoint. But, you know, DC still has opportunity. I still think that we're not you know, in, I think I've said this before, but like in a year from now, I don't expect us to call ourselves as a D2C e-commerce business, but more of a consumer health brand. And so, you know, that's really kind of been our goal from the very beginning is not really just a consumer business, but really focus on preventative health. Yeah, I think there's so much opportunity in that space, especially since you haven't even you haven't you've just started to knock on the door of retail. There's just yeah. a different um, world there. So um, I also just want to closing thoughts here talking about exits in this space because um, part of the reason why we don't usually invest in this space is because the exits are so hard and they tend to be like they have to line up with a good market environment otherwise it's it's even i mean that's the case for all companies but with enterprise companies businesses you have a lot of positive exits that are just as high in good markets and in bad markets you don't really see that as much with consumer um but the thing that's incredible about consumer companies that i think people don't really understand is that in venture, we talk a lot about power law. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this, but like when you invest in 25 companies, you're probably going to have two companies that mm -hmm. carry the entire portfolio, like two unicorns, everything else dies. But you still, that overall is an incredible return period, you know, over 10 years. So that's what a lot of VCs focus on. With consumer though, the, actually the, the unicorns that come out of consumer tend to be even higher, bigger, like way huger exits than the ones in enterprise, they're just there are just less of them. Mm -hmm. uh, so you just have to be really good at finding the right founder and the right product to market fit and the right go to market strategy all the way through that that time frame. And I think if if you can do that, these are really really interesting investments. So um, 
any thoughts from you guys on on exits or the future? I know that's a long way off, but uh, I think it's so interesting. That is, fa- I actually have never heard of that. I don't know if Sahila's, mm-hmm. but I, I haven't. That's fascinating. Oh. Um, I think from our side, you know, I obviously I, I never I never think about operating the business for an exit. I think it's really important not to think of it that way because otherwise the opportunity you're just turning into the company that like you would ideally want to manifest to buy you, but that's not necessarily what they're looking for either. I think it's really important to build how it solved your personal needs. At least that's how, you know, Apothecary even started was, you know, following my curiosity, following my own problems and making that commercially available. And I I think that that's ultimately what, you know, acquires one to, you know, acquire. But, you know, we've been in conversations with all the strategics in the world of self-care and wellness, be it Shiseido and the more beauty kinds of companies or Unilevers and the P&Gs of the world. And so, you know, we fit squarely between healthcare, food, beauty, and wellness. And so I think the the landscape for us will have obviously kind of dictate out in the next two to three years. But I think people are still honestly trying to figure out wellness and how that fits into from like a portfolio perspective. And so we're not really kind of wait around for our, you know, growth yeah. and kind of what we want to do here. But um, I, I actually think that the brand value for wellness is more important than necessarily the products that people sell. It's it's so predicated on trust and so predicated on brand equity. And I think that's ultimately, though, to your point, like where the higher multiples get get paid. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, cool. Well, last question. Do you guys have any advice for other founders out there who are starting companies in the consumer space, if they're trying to think about marketing strategies or go to market, that sort of thing, advice or resources or thoughts on that? Yeah, so I can speak to the the restaurant space because I get a lot of calls like once a week or once a month with people saying like, I have this great idea. I want to start a restaurant. And um, yeah, restaurants are sort of uniquely this category where everyone can cook. So everyone is really excited, which is amazing. And I think that really making sure there's a market for your product and, and, you know, otherwise said, like really finding product market fit feels super, super important beyond just your immediate circle of friends, because, you know, it's important to remember people right around you are probably going to give positive feedback, especially in that initial trial. So I would say that from my lens, really thinking about what it is that you're building, why it is that you're building it, and why why it matters. What problem in the market is it actually solving? And then in addition to solving the brand, is to solving the problem, what kind of brand needs to be built in order to actually get people to try this new solution? Uh, that's kind of my my quick two cents. Cool. Well, thank you guys so much for being here. This was thank a lot you. of fun. We appreciate being on the season finale here. Yeah. yeah. yeah this is amazing. <laughs> Absolutely. And we'll be back in uh, 2024. And that's a wrap for today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. And if you enjoyed it, please leave us a rating and review. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Thanks. Bye.